I mentioned last week that there are certain themes, truths, realities, issues that we have to talk about every year. We have to revisit them because they're so important. They're so central to the life and health of a local church, and yet they are the ones that are the easiest to forget. They're not our immediate topics of conversation, and so we need to always place these before us. Among those topics, among those issues that we need to discuss every year as a church are including but not limited to marriage. We've got to talk about what marriage is. We've got to talk about manhood and womanhood. What does it mean to be man? What does it mean to be woman? And why does that have cosmic significance? We need to talk about membership. What does it mean to be a member of the local church? And does the New Testament even call us to be members? What what does that mean to be a member? We have to talk about prayer. What is it and how to do it? We have to talk about missions and the global cause of Jesus Christ unfolding in the world. We've got to talk about these kinds of things. Every year, we've got to remind ourselves of these things. But also, we have to, every year, talk about leadership. We have to talk about who the leaders are in a local church and what they are to be and do. What that does is bring me to a question. And the question is, what is it exactly that makes a great leader? Well, what makes a great leader? Which is an interesting question, isn't it? Because everybody seems to have an opinion. And I'm sure it's no surprise to you that every year there are thousands of conferences on leadership, tens of thousands of books written on leadership every single year. There's seminars and courses and conferences and degrees and training in leadership. I mean, this is really out of control. It's overload. And yet what this does is tell us is that the world is craving someone to lead them. To really, actually lead them. Lead them to where and to what exactly? I'm not entirely sure. But the world knows that it needs someone to lead them somewhere to something better. And yet, obsessed though the world may be with leaders and leadership, I mean, the the sheer glut of stuff out there tells us that the world clearly has not yet found what it's looking for. And, And to be sure, the world is infatuated with dynamic personalities, CEO, visionary type, motivational speaker guys who have confidence and charisma and swagger and creativity. You want leaders who are well-spoken and persuasive and educated. You need those who can win friends and influence people. And of course, it doesn't hurt to be well-dressed and extremely attractive, right? That, that is a good leader. Or is it? Is that what a leader is? My question is, who decides that? My question is, who gets to define what a good leader is to be and do? The question is, to whom should we look to lead us on what authentic leadership actually is? I mean, who gets to define what a leader is? Well, I've got an idea. How about the one who leads the entire universe? How about the one who is leading an invincible sovereign plan with invincible sovereign power? How about the one who is leading us to the springs of eternal life and to everlasting joy of of an invincible kingdom? I mean, do you think that he wants to weigh in on, on what a leader is? Do you think he has anything helpful to contribute to the conversation? And I would say, I think he very much does. 
And in fact, he has weighed in on what a leader is to be and do in the pages of Holy Scripture. And what he says in his word is that leaders in the local church are appointed by God himself. That leaders are appointed by God to shepherd the church which he purchased with his own blood. Leaders are appointed by God to lead the church behind enemy lines against the powers of darkness. Leaders are called to lead the church in the most loving and dangerous mission in the universe called the Great Commission, which tells us that if we want to be a church that changes the world, and we should very much want to be that, then we should want the kinds of leaders that God says should be leaders in the local church and the name for those leaders in the New Testament are called elders, pastors, shepherds, who shepherd the flock, who preach the word, who lead the lambs, who fight the wolves, who equip the saints and help them do whatever it is that has to be done to advance the global cause of Christ unfolding in the world. They are called elders. They are called pastors. They are called shepherds. And they are not priests. They are not ministers. They are not clergy. They are not bishops. They are not a council. They are not a board. They are pastors. They are shepherds, pastors who labor in the trenches, in the grime of life and their job is to help you be godly and to love Christ and to fight sin and do whatever it is that you got to do to live a life of Christ exalting significance for the great commission that is a leader and imperfect though they may be they are appointed by King Jesus himself and their marching orders are to preach the word to feed the flock shepherd the sheep, to lead the lambs. They are highly imperfect. They struggle just like you do. And yet they are called to help lead the church in the most sacred, impossible, and invincible task in the universe, namely the Great Commission. That's exactly what the next three or four, we'll see, sermons are all about. We interrupt this regularly scheduled message in 1 John to pause and talk about leadership, to talk about elders, what elders are called to be and do in the local church. Because if we want to be a healthy church that causes ripple effects into eternity, and we very much do want to be that, then we had first better get under our belts what leaders in the church are called to be and to do and to recruit you to become them and to support them. So here we go. A few weeks, three, maybe four, on the resume of biblical elders, what they're called to be and do. If you have notes, here's where we're going this morning. I want you to see from our text five observations. Five observations about elders that are indispensable if a church is going to be a healthy church that changes the world. That's where we're going. Five observations about elders that are indispensable if a church is going to be a healthy church that changes the world. And yet, before we even look at one of those observations, you have to remember what it is exactly that Paul is doing in the letter to Titus. See, what he's doing in this little letter is unfolding for Titus the blueprints, the architecture, the schematics of what a healthy church actually looks like. And although Paul's got several things on the list that he says you have to have to be a healthy church, the very first item on the list he says that you need is leaders. 
is leaders. And very particular kind of leaders. Not just anyone, not just anyone with a pulse, but very particular kinds of leaders. Paul calls them elders. And elders in the local church have very specific and precise qualifications and credentials, 15 of them to be exact. And in verses 6 through 9, Paul unfolds every single one of those qualifications. And we get the concept of being qualified, right? I and mean, we just live in a world that deals with qualifications. You apply for the job of a sushi chef but you've never had sushi and you don't know how to use a knife, you are unqualified for the job. You apply for the job of a CEO, but you've never ran a business, nor ever taken a business class, you are not qualified for the job. We get qualifications. And in the exact same way, to be an elder, to be a shepherd in the local church, there also are qualifications. You have to be qualified. And every single one of those qualifications are found in verses 6 through 9. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at every single one of those qualifications in detail. And the thing about those qualifications is that they are massive, and they are weighty, and they are sweeping, and they are transformative, and they are profoundly supernatural and cannot be accomplished without the sovereign power of God through His Word. These are absolutely massive and life-changing. But you see, right, if there are qualifications, that means that something is at stake. And something is at stake. Like the health of the church and the glory of Christ and the advance of the Great Commission. You understand all of those things hang in the balance depending on what kinds of leaders you have leading the local church. And so we need to get to the bottom of what elders are called to be and do, which is exactly where Paul goes in verses 5 through 9 in Titus chapter 1. Look where Paul begins in verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5, he says, For this reason, speaking to Titus, For this reason, Titus, I left you behind in Crete. Why? To set in order the things which are lacking, and secondly, to appoint elders in every church, even as I commanded. Now you may remember that a year or two before Paul wrote this letter, that he had spent two years in the Italy State Penitentiary for the Gospel. But as soon as he was released out on parole, almost immediately he grabs Titus and they catch a flight to the island of Crete where they begin planting churches and proclaiming the gospel. A year later, however, for whatever reason, Paul doesn't say why. He has to leave and he has to leave Titus there by himself to finish the gospel proclamation church planting work and yet to help Titus finish the work of planting churches that advance the Great Commission, that put Christ on display, he gives a surrogate form of himself in the form of a letter, sends it in the mail, and it just happens to be the very same letter that we have in our New Testaments right now as we speak called the letter to Titus. And what it is, is blueprints. The letter to Titus is the blueprints for a healthy church. And notice in verse 5, Paul gives two reasons. Two reasons why he, what he left Titus on the island of Crete to do. Notice, for this reason, Titus, I left you behind in Crete, number one, to set in order the things which are lacking, and number two, to appoint elders in every church. And you see it, the two reasons, the two things that Paul gave Titus to complete. The first reason is massive and general. The second is very narrow in particular. First, Paul says that Titus's marching orders are literally to set in order the things which remain or to set in order the things which are lacking. 
In other words, you get the idea that there were all sorts of things that were lacking, remaining leaks and gaps and loose ends in these churches that they had planted on the island of Crete. And so Titus's job was to plug the leaks and fill the gaps and tie up the loose ends. And bottom line, the things that are lacking are anything that hinders a church from fulfilling its mission. That's what that is. The church's mission is to make disciples of all the nations, and the things that are lacking are anything that hinders or cripples a church from doing that. And every church on the planet has those things that prevent it from being as fully effective as it could be, and so we need to resolve, we need to covenant together as a church, as a church family, that when we see any of those things that hinder us from our mission, that we do whatever it takes to change those things, even if it means we change things that the church has been doing for decades. I know change is hard. Change is scary. But, but you see, the, the mission is just too sacred for sacred cows. Our mission is just so much bigger than our personal preferences. Like Titus, we must work together to set in order the things which remain, the things which are lacking, so that we could be a church that causes ripple effects into eternity. Are you with me on this? Because we need the collective wisdom of the flock. But notice again, second, the second task that Paul gave Titus to do, not only to fix everything as a whole, just fix it, Titus, but also very particularly to appoint elders in every church, which means we're talking about leadership. We're talking about shepherd, leader, pastor type guys who labor in the trenches and help their people live lives of Christ exalting significance for the great commission that is what we're talking about and there are five really crucial observations about elders in this text that we have got to get a handle on and and that brings us to observation number one which is this number one the selection of elders the selection of elders look what Paul says I'm just going to pick apart words here For this reason, Titus, I left you behind in Crete. Why? In order that you would appoint elders in every city, just as I commanded. And you see it there. Appoint elders. Appoint them. Appoint them. That literally means to put them in charge. Acts 7.10 said that Joseph was appointed the governor over Egypt. Hebrews 5.1 in chapter 7 verse 28 says that priests were appointed over Israel, which means, which means, it's, and that's the exact same word, which means they are called to lead and guide and govern and rule and to lead and rule with love and grace to be sure, but to lead and rule nevertheless. And yet the question is, have you ever considered why it is that elders are called elders? I mean, why are they called? Why that title? Why is that significant? I mean, they're known as other things too. Pastors and shepherds, that's true. But why elders in particular? Because clearly this is one of the titles that God wants elders in the church to be known by. The question is, why does he want them to be known as elders? Does this term have any relevance for our lives whatsoever? And the title does have relevance. It is not just a cultural thing. Because you understand the thing about that title elder in the Greek, it is the word presbuterus. Presbuterus, and it literally means, get this now, older ones. That's what the term means. Older ones. 
And that does not mean that the only men who can serve as elders are those who are retired or senior citizens. In fact, get this, age isn't even necessarily the issue. Rather, the issue, the issue here is maturity. It's spiritual maturity. You see, the title of elder, the title of older ones, assumes a level of Christ-exalting maturity that older men are typically expected to have after decades of living life with Christ. In other words, elder, the title elder, assumes a level of maturity and purity and holiness that everyone has seen and has seen for years. Because you understand that youthful zeal and passion and knowledge and savvy and ability and confidence and being a gifted speaker and a dynamic personality do not an elder make. Magnetism and maturity are not the same thing. Having charisma does not make one qualified to lead the local church. Okay, well what does then? What's a starter list of things that that helps one see that maybe they could be qualified to lead the local church? Well, including but not limited to zeal for the glory of Christ. An appetite for His Word, a hunger for holiness, a love for the church, a passion for lost people. That is the makings of an elder. The question is, men, old, young, somewhere in between, Could this be you? Could you potentially be an elder at this church? Because I'm officially asking you to consider being an elder in the future, to be what Paul describes here in the letter to Titus, either full-time pastoral ministry like me or the loving labor of a volunteer elder, someone like Rich. I am asking the men of this church to consider, at the very least, to pray about serving as an elder in this church for the advance of the Great Commission. But that brings us to observation number two. Observation number two, the plurality of elders. The plurality of elders. Look again at what Paul says in verse five. He says, Titus, I'll paraphrase. Titus, I am not telling you to appoint a single, solitary, senior pastor over every church. Rather, I am telling you to appoint elders over the churches, plural. Because elders, plural, That is not an insignificant detail. That is massive. And the reason for that is because there is not one single text in the entirety of the New Testament that describes a single solitary pastor alone leading the church. There is not one. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. Acts 14.23, what did they do? They appointed elders in every church. Acts 20.17, Paul called to himself the elders of the church. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. James 5.15, if anyone among you is sick, let him call to him the elders of the church. 1 Peter 5.1, I exhort the elders among you to shepherd the flock of God. Do you see? Church is singular. Elders are plural which tells us that for the health of the church and the glory of Christ and for the good of your own souls, that leadership responsibilities are never ever to be placed on one man alone, but on a team of elders who shepherd the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 
Okay, don't misunderstand. Although all the elders are equal and they have the exact same qualifications, there's not two different sets of qualifications. At the same time, there is oftentimes a leader among leaders, a leader among the elders, a leader among equals, I like to say, one who leads the team of elders. Usually it's the guy called to preach and lead and give vision and strategy, someone kind of like me, for instance. But you have to understand, that guy, he is not the priest. He's not the high priest. He's not the pope. He's not the boss. And the elders are not his lackeys. The elders are not his subordinates because churches are led by elders, elder teams, plural. And that is who Titus was called to lead and appoint over every church, which makes sense, doesn't it? It makes total sense why you would have elder teams lead the flock and not just one man individually all alone by himself. It makes total sense. It's the old parable of the blind man and the elephant. All these blind men, they had no idea. They only had parts of the elephant on their own. They could not identify what it is they were dealing with. They needed the collective perspective of all the blind men together to figure out what it is they were doing. The point is every leader has blind spots. And so the, to have a healthy church, you need the self-corrective model of multiple elders leading the church. You think about it, this is the insane genius of having elder teams rather than one man alone. Because solo pastors, they get burnt out. But elder teams shoulder the load. At least they're supposed to. Solo pastors abuse their power, can abuse their power. Elder teams keep each other humble. Solo pastors can't get to all the sheep, but multiple pastors can feed the flock. Solo pastors, they do not have all the tools they need to help you. They have a narrow set of gifts that can't get to everyone, but the collective set of gifts in the elder team can get to, they, they compensate for his weaknesses. You see, the text is clear and unmistakable. Elders, plural, and not individual, solitary, senior pastors lead the church. Which means if, if this church is going to be everything you ever dreamed it could be, we need you to pray. We need you to pray for your elders every single day. I'm serious. Do not skip a day that you do not pray for us. I don't know if I came out right. I just need you to pray every day. Every single day for wisdom, for holiness, to be qualified for, for our lives, for our marriages, for doctrinal purity. You see, if you want to be shepherded and led in the way you ought to be shepherded and led, we implore you for the sake of Christ to pray for your elders. And if you want to know specifically how we're doing, all you have to do is ask. Remember months ago, we did a Zoom meeting and it was me just with a bunch of people who wanted to show up. And I don't even know what the point of the meeting was. Just asking a bunch of questions. And at the end of the call, Serlina asked me, well, how are you doing? How are you doing? And it really took me, it really took me by surprise. And I was so grateful for that. I was so grateful that, that you're asking, you know, how are you doing? And so we need that. We need that. We're just people. We're just people. Just dust like you called to love and lead. And so we need your prayer. But what this does is raise the question, doesn't it? Do we really need elders? 
Is this, is this really God's design for his flock, or could there potentially be something else? I mean, what about other churches like Baptists and Quakers and Congregationalists that don't use elders but do use something else? What about them? What are we supposed to do with this? And that brings us to observation number three, the non-negotiability of elders. The non-negotiability of elders. This is subtle, but so significant. Look again what Paul says in verse 5. It says, for this reason I left you behind in Crete. Why, Paul? Because I want you to appoint elders in every city. Another way to look at that is in every church, in every city. But notice, notice here it is. Appoint elders as I commanded you to. Appoint elders just like I commanded. I think it's really interesting that Paul didn't say, appoint elders, Titus. Or whatever you think is best. Or whatever the congregation thinks is best. Or whatever is most culturally relevant at the time. He doesn't say that. Rather, this was a command. Paul commanded that elders and not something else be appointed to lead the church. Not priests, not bishops, not reverends, not a committee, but elders, pastors, shepherds of a flock. Officially appointed leaders who give their lives to preach and teach and lead and shepherd the flock of God which he purchased with his own blood. Elders and not something else are God's design for his church. Which is interesting. Which is interesting because that word command, when Paul says, I command you, Titus, that word command, that's an old Greek word that goes all the way back to the days of the Roman legions. Say the term has military connotations that carries both notes of authority and urgency. So when Paul says, I commanded you to do this, the point is this was not a matter of multiple choice. This was the only choice to lead the church. And maybe you're thinking, okay, Jared, that's a bit strong, don't you think? Really, the only, the only model, the only design to lead the church, that's a bit strong because isn't this just Paul's opinion? After all, he does not say, Christ commands you to appoint elders. I command you to appoint elders. And that's true. Paul is the one commanding elder leadership here. And yet, he is doing so as an inspired apostle. As a representative of an authorized spokesman of the Lord Jesus Christ who wrote Scripture. And so if it's what Paul commands, it's what Jesus commands. And if it's what Jesus commands, it is authoritative and non-negotiable. At which point someone could argue, yes, yes, okay, I see that I can't be denied. Elders in the church, okay, but isn't that just for the churches of Crete? Not a universal mandate that all churches have to obey. This is just one particular situation, one particular location. Other churches can do it differently than that. The problem is that just doesn't square with the biblical evidence, which is the only kind that matters. For instance, in the very first church on the face of the planet, namely in Jerusalem, who led the church? It wasn't the apostles. It was the elders. Every church that Paul ever planted, he appointed elders. 
We see elders in almost every single New Testament letter in Ephesus, Philippi, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and according to James, every single church scattered across the Roman Empire, every single one of them were shepherded and led by elders, which tells us this wasn't just a Crete thing. This was a universal church thing, true for every age, culture, time, region, or place. Appoint elders in the church because that is what the Bible says. And I know that there are lots of churches that don't do elders. There are other forms of church government out there, and and they do something else instead. And no one is saying that those aren't true churches. No one is saying that they aren't used by Christ for the Great Commission, because every church is highly flawed and imperfect, and yet Christ uses them anyway. He will lovingly bless any church who adheres to his word, and he has done that for centuries. All I'm saying is the only leadership model modeled and commanded in the New Testament are elders who lead and preach and shepherd the flock. This and not something else is God's design. What this does is raise the question, what is it exactly then our elders called to be and do? I mean, I don't know why anyone would do this, but if someone stopped you on the street and they asked you, okay, oh, excuse me, sir, excuse me, ma'am, uh, can you tell me what it is that the elders in the local church are supposed to do? No one cares about that question. But if they were to ask you that question, what would you say? What would you say? I mean, other than broad general categories of leadership, what would you say that elders are to be and do? I don't think we really need to answer this question because there's profound misunderstanding about what elders are to be and do. There's, there's wrong expectations as to what elders are to be and do. And so that brings us to observation number four. Observation number four, the weighty responsibilities of elders. The weighty responsibilities of elders. And notice, notice there in the text, Paul doesn't actually tell Titus what elders are to do. And the reason is because he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. Paul and Titus had worked together for the last 20 years of ministry. And so a detailed introductory explanation of the basics of elder leadership were at this point unnecessary because Titus already knew that. But when you step back and you look at the New Testament as a whole, it becomes very, very clear who elders are and what they exist to be and do. For instance... Did you know that elders and pastors in the New Testament are simultaneous and interchangeable? Did you know that in the New Testament, there is no distinction between them? Elders are pastors. Pastors are elders in the New Testament. They are the exact same thing. They are equally appointed by Jesus Christ to shepherd the flock of God. Their work is pastoring, handling the word, feeding the flock, leading the lambs through the shark-infested ocean of a culture that has literally gone insane. Their work is pastoring. And to be sure... Elders do at times oversee heavier administrative loads. That's true. Building projects, administrative budgetary concerns, fundraisers, logistical concerns, nitty-gritty nursery issues, wheelchair ramps. I mean, if you I mean you name it, those things have to be done somehow, somewhere, by somebody. And elders have at times, there's elders, there's times when elders have on the responsibility to oversee these kinds of things temporarily. I mean, they're not not above doing those things. 
It's just that that is not the biblical vision of what elders are to be and do. I mean, I worked with an elderly senior pastor right after seminary whose vision of what pastoral ministry was to be was well-intentioned, I suppose, but profoundly misguided to the degree that he almost obliterated his church out of existence and would have done so if he had not have retired in just the nick of time. I mean, he studied a little, preached, although he hadn't preached a new sermon in the last 10 years of his ministry. His days were largely consumed with board meetings and phone calls and I mean, serious, vacuuming and changing sprinklers and, and obsessing over the furnace and making Christmas baskets and, and micromanaging the storage closet in the youth room. And I'm not saying those things don't matter because in their own way, they do matter. It's just that I am unconvinced on biblical grounds that those are the kinds of things with which an elder should be preoccupied. And what that does is raise the question, okay, wise guy, if you're so smart, then, then what is an elder called to be and do? What should be on the list, a weekly list? of a pastor, of an elder. I'm glad you asked because I've got a list. Looking through the New Testament, it comes really clear. And if you have notes, they're on there. But in no particular order, here is what a pastor slash elder slash shepherd is called to do. Matthew 28, 19, elders make disciples. Everybody makes disciples, let's be clear. But elders lead the charge in making disciples. John 21, what is it that pastors, elders do? They feed the flock. Acts 20, 28, 1 Peter 5, 2, they shepherd the flock. Acts 6, 4, they devote themselves to the word and prayer. Matthew 18, they help people struggling in sin and go after people drifting in sin and do church discipline, or as we call it here, church restoration. 1 Timothy 4, 13, they exhort and teach the word. Colossians 1.28, they teach and admonish you with the word to make you mature. Hebrews 13.17, they keep watch over your souls. Ephesians 4.12, they equip the saints for the work of ministry. Titus 1.10, they silence false teachers. 2 Timothy 2.15, they accurately handle the word of God. 2 Timothy 4.2, they preach the word. James 5.14, they care and pray for suffering members. And 2 Timothy 2.2, get this now, they even train future leaders who will eventually replace them. That is on the list of an elder. And don't, don't you see what's so profound about that list? Is that every single one of those things has to do with the ministry of the Word of God. Every single one of those things. Speaking the Word. Teaching the Word. Proclaiming the Word. Preaching the Word. Counseling with the Word. Which means the work of a pastor slash elder is fundamentally a theological work. It is a Word-centered work. Central to our jobs is to lift up and give you the highest exalted view of God and then help people in the church make connections with the everyday issues in the trenches of life. That is the work of a shepherd. Elders are at the same time gourmet chefs who feed you with the word. They are personal trainers who get you in shape with the word. They are physicians who repair you with the word. They are security guards who protect you with the word. And sometimes they even must protect you from yourselves.
And so my challenge for you, church, beloved, is to remember that, that shepherding you, that, that leading you, it, it, it's, it's a two-way street. You see, what, what I mean is, is, that, is that for you, for us to be most effective in our ministry as shepherds and, and elders to you, is that we really need you to be fat. F-A-T. It's a little cheesy, but it works. We need you to be faithful. We need you to be available. And we need you to be teachable. It's a a two-way street. It's not that we don't need to be that. We totally do. But we really need this. This is a two-way street. First, we need you to be faithful. Can you be faithful to pursue Christ through his word? Can you be faithful to do what Colossians 1, 9 through 12 is, is describing? When Paul talks about that what what we need to do is that we need to be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we would walk in a manner worthy of Christ in all things pleasing, bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Can you, can you be faithful to look at the prayers of Paul and seek to, seek to say before the Lord, I want that, I am miles for that, but I want that. Can you be faithful? to that, to absorb and imbibe God's mission and vision for your life. And that when you're struggling, would you please come and tell us? We, we want to know. I want to know how you're doing. I, I, I can't get to all of you. And, and so, so let's meet in the middle and, and, and help me. Let me know when, when you're struggling and what I can do to help you. But number two, can you be available? Can you be available? And I don't just merely mean church attendance, although I do mean that too. You have to be present. But can you be available for ministry? Because you understand that the pastor's job, the elder's job, is not to do all the ministry, but to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And did you know that the most important ministry in the church is the one another's found in the pages of Scripture? That is the most important ministry in the church. It doesn't have an official title, there, there isn't a, you know, a one another's ministry. It's, it's all the one another's. And I am asking you, I'm asking you to, to download a list online of, of the one another's and begin to pray about those things. And can you be available to be and do those, to do the one another's, to and for one another? We do that and we are a completely different church. And I see, I see glimpses of it here. I see it happening and it is thrilling. But can you be available to do that? finally, can you be teachable? Can you be teachable? And this is the most important question of all, but are you willing to let the word of God change and transform anything about your lives that hinder the Great Commission? That's a scary question because change is hard, but are you willing to be teachable and submit your lives under the authority of the proclamation of the word of God? Are you, are you a teachable person? Because, because here's, here's what pastors and elders can work with. People who are hungry and teachable. That we can work with. We're not expecting any perfection out there, but we can work with hungry and teachable. Can you be teachable? Because those are happy churches. Those are joyful churches. Those are effective churches. And yet that brings us, last but not least, to observation number five. 
Observation number five, and here it is, the blamelessness of elders. The blamelessness of elders. Look at verses five and six together. For this reason, Paul says, I left you, Titus, in Crete. Why? That you would set in order the things which are lacking. Number two, that you would appoint elders in every church as I commanded you. Here it is. Who can serve as an elder? And he says, if any man is blameless. Stop right there. So do you see what Paul's doing here in verse 6? After commanding Titus to appoint elders in every city or in every church, in every city, he begins to unfold in verses 6 through 9 the qualifications that a man must have before he can serve as an elder. You see, to serve as an elder in the local church, there are some very rigid strings attached called qualifications. And they are non-negotiable. They're non-negotiable. They must be, however imperfectly they, that may be, they must be in a man's life before he can serve as an elder. Because again, it does not matter how dynamic or well-spoken or persuasive or educated or accomplished or experienced or confident a man may be, those things in and of themselves do not an elder make. This is the list. This is the criteria. My dream, my dream for Christ Community Bible Church is that every man would be elder qualified. That doesn't necessarily mean that every man has to serve as an elder, but that every man would, would be pursuing these qualifications. Here is the list. What does God want for your life? This. This list. And here's the thing. Here's the thing about those qualifications. Although there are 15 total Here's what's really interesting, is that that first one on the list called blameless, get this now, is the overarching qualification, and the other 14 qualifications on the list are but expansions of the first. In other words, what does it mean? What does it look like to be blameless? And every single qualification underneath the list explains exactly what that means. And so, men, men, can you be an elder at Christ Community Bible Church? Absolutely you can. If you are blameless. And what does it mean to be blameless? Well, he says, husband of one wife, having believing or faithful children, which indicates proactive shepherding in the home, leadership in the home. Verse 7, and, and, and one can be an elder if he is not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard or addicted to wine, not pugnacious or quarrelsome could be the word, or contentious is the word, not greedy of base gain, but instead of that, notice, hospitable. You have to be hospitable to be an elder. Isn't that interesting? Love what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word according to the teaching. That is what it means to be blameless. And those qualifications are massive and gargantuan and profoundly supernatural. Stakes are high. Stakes are high, and over the next few sermons, that's exactly what we're going to look, like those quali- look at, those qualifications, one by one by one. And yet what that does is raise a question, doesn't it? And, and, and the issue is, is how hauntingly relevant these qualifications are to every single person in the room. Because you can imagine someone going, okay, you know what, this is interesting, but this is about 
men pursuing eldership. I'm never going to be an elder, so this doesn't really have a lot of relevance to my life. That's kind of disappointing because I was hoping to hear something that could apply to my own life when I come to church on the Sunday morning, to which I reply, not so fast. Not so fast because the thing about these qualifications is that even if it is not in the cards for you to be an elder one day, you have to understand these qualifications are profoundly relevant for your life. Do you know why? Because every single qualification on the list is commanded of all believers somewhere else in the New Testament. Every single one commanded of all believers somewhere in the New Testament. For instance, did you know that every single believer is called to be blameless? 1 Corinthians 1.8, Paul says that we are to be blameless. He, he says in Colossians 1.22 that Christ died to make you holy and blameless. Philippians 2.14 and 15, listen to what it says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Ouch. Why? In order that you would be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. All people are called to be blameless. But then you keep going down on the list in Titus. And they're for everybody. Husband of one wife, translating into what? Sexual purity and fidelity. That's for everybody. Having faithful children translates to faithful shepherding and parenting of your kids. If you have kids, that applies to you. Not being arrogant, that's for everybody. Not being quick-tempered, that's for everybody. Not, not being a drunkard or a dick, being pugnacious or contentious or quarrelsome, that's for everybody. Not being greedy for base gain, that's for everyone. Hosp hospitality, that is for everyone in the church. Loving what is good, that's for you. Being sober-minded, that's for you. Being just, fair, equitable in your dealings with people, that is for you. Being reverent or holy, that's for you. Being self-controlled, that's for everybody. And even in verse 9, when he talks about holding fast the Word of God, the Word of God is also to be the supreme and central place in your life also. All of these qualifications are profoundly relevant to each of our lives. What this does is raise the question. I essentially close with this. What does it mean, though, to be blameless? I mean, I know the other 14 qualifications explain and define what it means to be blameless, but what does Paul mean when he says that someone is to be blameless? Interestingly, that word was used in the ancient Greek world in a court of law. It means no one has a charge against you. It means no one has evidence against you. There's nothing that can stick to you. It means that, that, that if there any be any charges against you, that nothing can be, can be legitimately brought against you. It means that there are no scandals. There are no secrets. There's no shame. There's, there's nothing to hide. 
To be blameless is to have a radically transformed, albeit imperfect life that by the transforming power of the Word, by the Spirit, puts Jesus Christ on display. You see, Paul's point is, is that to be blameless means that a man's life is so radically transformed that when all the facts are in, not one area of his life can be used to legitimately bring Jesus Christ into public disrepute. That we can search in your house, search on internet history, talk to people who know you, and that nothing in your life would bring you, your God, or your church into public disrepute. Or to put it positively, to be a blameless man means that there is something about your life. There is something about your life that just smells like eternity. That there's something about your life that has about it an aura of the transcendent. That like Moses high up on the mountain, that it's just obvious to everyone who knows you that you are often long and often in communion with the living God. There is something different about you because you are in connection with the living God. It's the essence of what it means to be blameless. Now let's be clear, that doesn't mean that there aren't occasional lapses, struggles, challenges, difficulties for which a man needs to repent and seek power to change. Oh, that's true. That's true. That does happen too. You see, you see there, there, there will be inconsistencies in, in a man's life. And see, here's the thing. He, the, the issue is, is that even the way a blameless man deals with his sin is part of what it is that makes him blameless. But the issue is that there are no patterns or secrets in his life that would bring himself, his God, or his church into open shame. That's the issue. And what's really interesting, to be blameless not only means that, that a man avoids every evil, but to get this, that he avoids even the very appearance of evil. That he so lives his life in such a way that he works really hard to, to conduct himself in such a way that to not even raise the possibility of suspicion. For instance... Even years later, I still can't get the image out of my head of a pastor that I once knew who gave back rubs to pretty girls in the congregation. Maybe it was something. Maybe it was nothing. But either way, it wasn't blameless. So the question is, elders, future elders and everybody else, are you blameless? Are you a blameless person? I'm not saying sinless, I mean blameless. Because although being sinless is impossible in this life, being blameless is profoundly possible. Are you blameless here this morning? Which means I am asking, is your life increasingly transformed by the sovereign power contained in the Word that when all the facts are in, not one area of your life can legitimately bring Jesus Christ into public disrepute? What I'm asking is you don't have a secret life of hidden shame, do you? Because again, I just want you to know that being blameless is possible. 
It is profoundly possible if you are in Christ. See, the issue is that if you belong to Christ, you have available through His death in the Word, by the power of the Spirit, everything you need to obey what God commands. I've said this before, God is not like Pharaoh who makes you make bricks without straw. He provides everything you need in and through His Son to do what He commands. That is profoundly good news. That is why the new covenant is far superior to the old. here's the deal, if you are not a Christian, if you don't belong to Christ, if you don't know Him, you've been fooling yourself and others about where you really are in Christ. I just want you to know that you don't, you don't have to fake it anymore. That you can have the real thing. That you can have not only forgiveness for the sins of the past, but you can have in Christ all the power to overcome all sin and temptation in the present and in the future. You can have a new heart. You can be born again. You can be raised up with Christ. You can be liberated and ransomed and redeemed from your sins. You can have eternal life and you can be reconciled to God as the treasure of your soul. You can have the whole vault of salvation and everything it contains if you confess. If you confess that you are bankrupt, that you are corrupt, that you have within you humanly incurable corruption that needs sovereign supernatural deliverance. If you confess like we do that you are a spiritual cripple and a beggar of grace, that you have nothing to offer God except the sin that needs to be forgiven, if you are willing to bow in allegiance to the King, if you are willing to lay down the weapons of rebellion and wave the white flag of surrender and give yourself to the all-satisfying custody of Jesus Christ, you can have a radically transformed life that puts His eternal glory on display. And my question is, why on earth would you settle for anything less? We're talking about elders. Who they are, what they are called to be and do. And we'll see who they are in the coming weeks. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, your word is a strange mystery because it cuts and heals all at the same time. It wounds and fixes all at the same time. It makes us sore and it soothes us all at once. And Lord, that's what we want. We don't want what the unbelieving world wants is to be told that they're okay, that nothing is wrong, they can be and do who they want to be without consequences, no matter how much it hurts or harms other people, whatever. Lord, we don't want to be those people. Oh Lord, we want to be a people who are transformed. We want to be a people who are carved into the image of your Son. And Lord, the cutting tool, the chainsaw, the sword of your word does the cutting, oh Lord, and we are grateful that it provides both the healing and comfort and soothing and satisfaction that, that we need. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow in being a radically word-centered people. 
And Lord, I do also pray that you would help us to be a church who has a sound doctrine of the church. We need your help. We want to be the kind of church that you call us to be and, and in the pages of Scripture, and in specifically in Paul's letter to Titus. And so I ask you for that, Lord. I ask you that you would help us to continue to grow in that, to be that kind of church. Thank you for the saints that are here. Thank you for what a, a joy and delight they are. Thank you that they're, for their striving after you. Lord, thank you for the church, what it is, what you are doing in the world, and that to be in the church is to be at the center of the action, at the center of your redemptive purposes for human history. And we are so grateful you have chosen us and saved us to be a part of it. In Christ's matchless name we pray. Amen.